Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today, along with my partner, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin. We also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today's guest is distinguished researcher and statistician, Sir David Spiegelhalter, a fellow of the Royal Society. He is currently chair of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. He has dedicated his career, in his words, to improving the way that quantitative evidence is used in society. This includes, of particular interest to us, biostatistics and medical research. David is an ISI highly cited researcher who has also focused much of his time and energy to public education. Through numerous media interviews, documentaries, such as his recent BBC series, Geared Towards Children, and books like the one we are discussing today. That book is The Art of Statistics, How to Learn from Data. It was published in the UK by Penguin in March 2019 and recently released here in the US by Basic Books in September of 2019. David, welcome to the show. It's a treat to have you today. And it's also five o'clock in the evening. So thanks for joining us on your Friday evening. Yeah, no, it's a great honor to be on it on this. And uh, as you said, it's a good start for a Friday evening. Well, uh, who, who wouldn't want to be talking about statistics on a Friday evening? That's a, exactly. it's a great start to the weekend. Well, David, I came across your recent book that was just published here in the U.S., I believe this month, actually. This was uh, mentioned in a recent New Yorker article just mm. two months ago. What really struck me is when I got to the end of the article... There was a little correction. An earlier version of this article incorrectly defined p-value. And I was stunned by that because the New Yorker prides itself in their fact-checking department. In fact, one of our past guests began his writing career doing that. They're very rigorous. And all they would have to do is go to, I think, page 265 of your book. And there it was. So it, it leads a, into this question, Dave. And I know you get this a lot, but I, I think it's a good place to start. Statistics is so important. The tools are becoming more and more important every day to every facet of society and every business and every discipline. And yet so many of us, even very highly educated people, still stumble and struggle with this. I'm just curious, David, in your observations, why do you think that is? Why is so much of this so inaccessible and challenging for us? Yeah, it's great. In the book, I do say that, um, you know, people always ask me, oh, why does everyone find probability and statistics so unintuitive and difficult? And I wheel out the reply, well, I've been working in this area for 40 years, researching it and teaching it and so on. And I finally decided it's because probability and statistics really are unintuitive and difficult. Oh, thank God. It makes me feel better. Exactly. So, and I, and I emphasize that in the book a lot. Just, you know, just accept it that this is tricky stuff, a lot of it. This is not just arithmetic. The ideas of how to learn from data, what can we conclude, these are really subtle and, and it is quite difficult. I mean, I've been doing it a long time, so I've got, I have got used to so many of the ideas and explaining them, but I have every sympathy with people who struggle. Well, we're going to get into a lot of different things today. I thought it'd be fun just to start before we get going. You are, you're actually not our first, sir. Uh, you're our second, but the first in Great Britain. Uh, the last one was David Sinclair, who is, as was knighted in the Order of Australia. Right. And 
frankly, even more interesting, you're also a member of the Royal Society, which is one of, if not the oldest science organization in the world. Just curious, shed a little light on this, especially for Americans you know, such as me who know very little of this. What's the process of finding out that you're going to be up for knighthood and, and inclusion into the Royal Society? Yeah, they're, they're rather different. I mean, and the Royal Society, frankly, is a fantastic thing to get. You know, it really is. Is, is I, I regard this as, as the best thing I, I've been, I, I've managed. And um, but there, you know, you're up for it. You get recommended, and then you you say what you've done, and it goes on for a year or two, or even longer. And then you you hear you get a phone call to say you've been successful, and that's fantastic. But you do know what's going on. The knighthood is really bizarre. I had absolutely no idea anyone was suggesting me or anything like this so what do i do i just get a letter one morning go down open the letter and i thought oh it's a fancy envelope or something like that and I open up the letter it says uh would you like a knighthood essentially you know if you were offered a knighthood by her majesty uh, would you accept it and i i i, I thought it's a spoof i was <laughs> holding the holding the letter up to the light i thought so anyone could write this and, and you know, and I, I really thought, and I, then I thought, oh God, no! I don't. Oh no, this is awful. You know, will this change my life or anything like this? In the end, you know, I, I accepted, and um, it wasn't a spoof, and it hasn't made any difference at all. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely none. I really thought it might, you know, I might get something for it, like you know, <laughs> an upgrade on a flight or something. Like no, absolutely nothing. It's not even on your passport. Oh, I have put it on my passport, but I still haven't had an upgrade. Ah, interesting. Yeah, uh, Colin and I were wondering how many statisticians do you think have been knighted over the course of uh, of as long as there's been knights? Oh, oh, quite a few. There's quite a few oh. knocking around at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, we because. Um, you know, I got it because of public service. We might talk about some of these things mm-hmm. later on. That you, statisticians are, are extremely useful people, and um, and one thing I like about statisticians is that they tend not to have strong personal agendas. Uh, you know, they tend not to campaign about things except for better use of statistics, and so they're generally seen as 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 good people. As, as as useful and and we do help a lot on government inquiries and in economic stuff i don't do that but other people do and in work on health and that sort of thing so we you know we're not very sexy i suppose but we slog away behind the scenes and and that is nice to get that appreciated well that's uh, yeah that's a wonderful honor i imagine and uh, it's an honor to have you on our show i mean it's uh, pretty incredible <laughs> i mean uh, sir isaac newton was a member at one point wasn't he Oh yeah, 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 and he was he was he was big in the royal in the royal society, and um, yeah, and lots of other people were. No, there's there's some very very clever people there, and I, I feel you know it's nice that they give it to someone like me who who does very practical stuff. You know, I don't do clever mathematics and and things like that, the sort of thing that um, you know the people who you know, the guy who solved Fermat's last theorem, of course, he's in there like a shot and, and all this stuff. But you know, um, <laughs> I, it's very nice that they pre- appreciate the kind of stuff I do, which is as as you'll hear is. is you know, bread and butter, practical things that try to help people. Absolutely. Well, there's so many different directions we can go and a lot was covered mm-hmm. in your book, but we do definitely at least have to start with medicine considering our audience yeah. here. Oh yeah. So this was a 2014 article in JAMA where they repeated a 1978 test, basically assessing the statistical knowledge of physicians where a majority of those surveyed overestimated the positive predictive value of a laboratory test result using prevalence and false positive rate. So let's talk a little bit about these findings and maybe expand on the example you brought up earlier before we started recording, David. 
Yeah, it's a very difficult issue. This is one of the classic unintuitive things. And I'll give you an example that's incredibly relevant because of something that's just happened in the UK. Uh, let's say you've got a prenatal genetic test and the company that's marketing it says it's 99% accurate. And that's the claim. And uh, if you dig down in the literature a bit, it'll say what that means is that if you've got the test, it'll, it'll be uh, if you've got the disease, it'll spot it 99% of the time. And if you haven't got the disease, it'll get that right 99% of the time. And let's say that this is in a fairly low risk population uh, where, where only one in a thousand people have got this, this particular condition. Well, one in a thousand uh, fetus has got this condition. What if that test comes out positive? This 99% accurate test, what is the chance that this fetus has genuinely got the genetic abnormality? And the chance is 9%. In other words, 91% chance they have not, they, this is this has not got actually the abnormality, and this is a false positive result. Now, the reason, I'll come on to the how we can how you can do that in your head in a moment. The reason why it's so relevant is that we've got a, a check um, called the Advertising Standards Authority in this country that tells people off if their advertising is misleading. And yesterday, they made a judgment about three companies marketing prenatal genetic testing, essentially saying that adverts were misleading because they were quoting the accuracy of the test, which were 99% accurate. That was what had been quoted. And not telling people what the chance was that their, their fetus would be affected if they did have a positive result. And that, and most people were interpreting that as 99%. And in fact, that's hopelessly wrong. Yeah. So, so they've actually, they, they, three companies have just been, um, you know, uh, chastised for that. Okay. Can I, let me see if I can do the, show you how I can do the sums. So let's say this is, this condition is, there's one person and then there's uh, one fetus has got it and a thousand others haven't. And you do the test on all these thousand and one cases. Well, the the test will find, you know, almost certainly ninety nine percent chance it will find the one the person who's who's affected. But let's think of the thousand unaffected people. Remember, it's only ninety nine percent accurate on them. That means that one percent of them will be falsely diagnosed as having the condition. That's ten cases. So that's a total of eleven positive tests, and only one of them actually has the condition. So if you get if you have a positive test, it means if you're one of these low risk cases, there's only a nine percent chance you actually have the condition, not ninety nine percent. Now that reasoning, which I hope I made reasonably clear, is deeply unintuitive, and uh, and and requires. I think I think the way I've explained it is the way that you know people have shown can be very effective at communicating this, but it still remains unintuitive. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I went through the exercise you did with um, breast cancer and mammograms. Yeah, breast cancer so screening. It, when, it, when it's on paper and laid out, it does make perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. When we're consuming news, especially at a very hyper rate, looking yeah. at it on our phones, we're not thinking this way, right, David? And, and also, and also, the, you know, this this jargon that's used is appalling. The 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 word false the term false positive rate is appalling jargon. It's got at least three different meanings. I could suggest it's a grossly misleading term that I think should be you know you should never use it in popular discourse because it's got so many different interpretations. So I think I think if what you have to say if ever you're describing any anything to do with diagnostic tests is to be very clear. Say of a hundred people with the condition, it will correctly find it, find them 90% or 99%. Similarly, you might say of a hundred people who get a positive test, this many will have actually have the condition given in this type of population. Uh, 
So you have to make it really clear what group of people you're talking about. And to start talking about rates, false positive rates, accuracy, these are, are, are these terms are so ambiguous that they really should not be used in any public-facing literature, even scientific literature. And yet they are. Um, that, yeah. I mean, terms like sensitivity and specificity, no, they're well-defined, they're fine, they're okay, prevalence are fine, positive predictive value are fine. All those terms are well-defined, but, so, but it's the terms like accuracy and false positive rate that are really misleading. So you mentioned something interesting, the Advertising Standards Agency or Board, was that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't believe we have anything like that here in the U.S. Um, you, mu- you must have something that if people can't just tell any lie in, a, in an advert, surely they can't. Yeah, I mean, you could sue somebody for for if, if there was some sort of harm that you suffered, uh, right? But it would have to be a harm. Um, okay, right. But right, I don't know okay. that we have any body like that. Are they are they very involved? I mean, is it pretty often that they're shooting down advertising? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. If you go onto their website every you know, every week, they 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 got an extra list of of of, of, of uh, you know companies that the adverts they're criticizing and say need to be taken down. And, say, and they they have statutory duty; those adverts will come down, will oh, change. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, since we're on this topic, David, with media, you know, there's uh, to be fair, there's overwhelming pressure on people in journalism to, in fact, they don't even always write the the titles for their own stories, right? Sometimes that's the editor, but there's overwhelming pressure to get something out that's going to grab people's attention. And the slow, iterative process of scientific progress is just sometimes it's boring, you know, things that really happen in life are often slow and methodical and tedious. But these big breakthroughs that everyone's always looking for, uh, they turn out to be the more suspect ones. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, what have you observed? We already talked a little bit about this in the media, but the tendency to put out information and then how people actually find out about new research, new medical advances. What's wrong with this process? And what could be important? Think, you, it's, it's very important that as consumers, you know, when we hear a story on the news or in the newspaper or online, we should understand how it gets to us. Um, I always say the first question you, sh- you should ask when you hear any health story, especially a health story, especially about risk, is why am I hearing this? How's it got to me? What filters has it gone through? Who wants me to hear it? Because if you think about the actual research that's done, you know, in the end, somebody, some scientist does some research that's been commissioned or paid for by some grant or something like that. And then, and then you know, if they decide to, uh, they'll, they'll write it up and submit it to a journal. But of course, there's a filter there. You know, maybe it'll be rejected. Maybe they won't even write it up. Um, maybe it'll be then rejected or go on to a more minor journal. And, uh, and the other thing is journalists tend not to read the journals. Uh, either they rely on the press releases that are given by the journals or, or the um, organization that the researcher works for, their university does a press release and promotes the story. And that puts an extra filter into it that tends to lead, as research has shown, to exaggerations and overclaiming and the caveats are dropped to a large extent. And, and then, of course, it gets to the journalist. And actually, and then, then, as you mentioned, it goes, if they, their story then has to be both accepted by an editor and certainly in um, many of the UK uh, newspapers, 
they stick the, the editor puts the headline on the clickbait sure. headline and it, which can be grossly misleading and exaggerated so by the time we see this when we see a headline in the news I, you know i've got this really miserable you know this I, the one the story i got you know groucho marx had this wonderful claim that he wouldn't join any member any club that would have him as a member and um, <laughs> And that lovely paradoxical statement I, I use when I'm reading a health story in the news, the very fact that I'm hearing a health story in the news is reason not to listen to it. I felt the same way for a long time. I, I tell yeah, people that all because, the time. That's not where you should get your The only reason I'm hearing it is because it's newsworthy, which means it's probably wrong. It's been filtered through, exaggerated, overclaimed, uh, manipulated, you know, highly selected information, and so on. So it's a real shame. But that means that so much of what we see um, is so desperately unreliable. And, um, and, and actually, I think the journalists... Uh, I've, who I've got a lot of time and respect for, often the strongest link in that chain. And the weak link is is sometimes the, the publication process, uh, the scientists themselves overclaiming, the press officers in their community, the comms departments, and then the editor, of course, putting the headline on. And those are very weak links that tend to uh, lead to distortions in, in, in the true space. Yeah. Let's take a step up a little bit to professional researchers, scientists, physicians, the people who consume you know this literature and also use it for decision making processes. Um, I, I I just couldn't find anything, and you may not know the answer to this, but uh, it's something to think about a little bit: how physicians particularly read medical journals, how long they spend on an article, how long they look at it. Um, same could be you know looked at for other researchers. So, take for example, David, if I go on Amazon right now and I look up your book. You know, the art of statistics, Amazon apps. We all know this. A Amazon knows how long I looked at the reviews, mm -hmm. how, how, where I went on the page, where my cursor mm -hmm. was, what other books, what other products I looked at. They know everything that I did on their webpage. Can I, sorry, can I suggest you look at the UK version? Cause it's got more and better. Actually the, the U S reviews are quite good, but there's a lot more on the UK versions. Well, well, there are. And the books are identical. That's the trouble. Is well, to be perfectly honest with you, we got free review copies from your publisher. Just an example. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but we all understand this, right? Uh, I'm wondering, and I couldn't find this, but I'm wondering if you know some of the aggregated services like PubMed that we have here in the U.S., um, I think the European Union has one uh, for, for all of Europe, um, or, or just publishers like Eliza, have they ever done research or observation data, for example, on a physician, you know, do they just really just look at the abstract and the conclusion? Do they actually read through the whole thing? Yep. How much time do they spend? What, what is known about that? If anything? No, I, I, I must say, I'm not sure. I'm sure people must have researched that. And of course, you know, people don't get paper journals anymore in the same way. So they're, they're clicking through, um, you know, lists of, of possible articles to look at. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I know for me, um, my sources, I, I, you know, I use Twitter. You know, I, I, I look at stuff that I'm alerted to, although um, I am fortunate as well that I get alerted by uh, something called the Science Media Center in the UK. So I get I get alerted to things before publication sure. so that I've got an opportunity to to. to and to comment on them under embargo. But, um, I mean, information sources, I mean, the, the scientific literature, the medical literature is so absurdly huge. I mean, no one can keep track of it unless they've got some filter, filtering um, 
that's that's uh, that they're using um and i think everyone's got their own filters i feel very sorry for anyone in medicine who's trying to keep up with with what's going on and i'm sure that they'll rely on you know um you know various lists that are sent out by professional bodies or, or other organizations to that have that have pre-filtered it um so that you can look at a manageable amount which is not that much well, Keith, shed some I mean, light I, on this. I mean, yeah. as a physician, were you more trust trusting of uh, people from your program, from Harvard, from you know colleagues? Well, we certainly um, would look at the program. I mean, to be honest, if it was someone I know, I would often take it with a grain of salt because it was someone I knew. Huh. Um, but um, the um, the program that it came from was important. I think what a lot of times we do is we make an assumption that the the so-called big journals have done the the statistical heavy lifting for us. So anything that appears in a big journal is supposedly free of any sort of well as much bias or or uh, or um, uh, luggage as something that we would find in what we call the throwaways. Um, but having written for and submitted to these, and actually having done some editorial work. I realize that's not totally true because I'm not sure um, who's actually doing the statistical work. Um, do you have any sense of of, uh, of how they define the statistics for like a New, uh, New England Journal of Medicine or a Journal they, of Bone and Joint Surgery? Yeah, I mean the better journals, the, you know, they they had do have, you know statistical refereeing process, and they have they have a statistician on the on the on the panels that accept papers and things. So they, no, they are better. I mean, some journals are obviously much better than others, but they're certainly not perfect. I've seen some you know pretty dire things get through yeah. refereeing for the very major journals, indeed. And, and I I respect that this is very difficult to to keep up this this quality. I believe that actually. Um, you know that we're talking here as well about you know the reproducibility of the scientific literature, which is a matter of of considerable concern at the moment. Um, I think you know, the, you know like people have learned in industry, you don't build in quality um, by checking what comes off the end of the production line. You have to build in quality right from the beginning, and the entire process of of um, you know getting a more reliable scientific literature means that has to be built in right at the beginning, at the very start of, a, of, of developing a program of work. And certainly, I'm, I'm a big fan of this idea of of uh, certainly pre pre uh, registration of, of studies, uh, especially clinical trials, but also this uh, idea of registered reports, where um, the which have been really pushed in psychology and are moving into other areas. Many journals accepting those now, where the, where the researchers submit the the, um, the the first couple of sections of the paper, the the, the, the summary and and the, the background and the methods. And the the paper that's peer reviewed, and the paper that is then accepted on the basis of the methods before the experiment's even been done, without seeing any results whatsoever. And the, and the, they know then the paper will be seen. Some of my colleagues have been doing this now, and they just say it's wonderful because it's a lot of work up front. But then you you just do the experiment and publish the data exactly what you find, regardless of what it's actually shown. And I think it's a very very powerful idea to improve the quality of of what's in the literature. Interesting. That gives people a chance to get some input on how they should do the experiment too. Yeah, involved, yeah. Huh? The red. The, I mean, because I I do a lot of you know refereeing. You know, well, I used to. I got so fed up with it. Not so many in my life, but huh. but you're seeing it too late. You know, there's this old joke that you're you know all you got is you're as a statistician, all you're seeing is the uh, you know essentially the corpse of the study. Yeah. The, the, hey, you know, I you can't. Just... 
you need to get in there early in order to influence it. And there's a referee refereeing a paper. It's too late to do anything because they've designed the thing wrong right from the beginning. So right. what can you do? What can you do? Hey, quick question about Twitter because you mentioned that. I'm looking at your profile right now. You have almost 30,000 followers, which is yeah, uh, it's yeah, a lot, yeah. right? No, I, I like it. I know it's taken me a long time to build that up, but I I, uh, I really – it's my chosen medium that I use. Yeah. Well, so you said you use it as a filtering mechanism. Mm -hmm. How do you mm -hmm. think about that? Are there obviously certain people you trust to yeah, go through yeah. research I mean, and suggest things to you? Uh, how much exactly. time do you spend I mean, on it, it? I'm curious. It's who I follow. I, I, try to, I don't follow that many people. I try to follow people whose opinion I trust. And if they point me to something, I'll look at it. No, yeah, this is not a perfect filter at all, you know, but it means that I am pointing to interesting things and also bad things because I like, unfortunately, I like identifying really bad stuff because then yeah. I can, I can give it a good kicking, which is, which is, I'm afraid <laughs> I still quite, quite in, get a certain sort of venomous glee out of, out of doing. Um, so you know, I think, I think, uh, it is so important to be able to critique what we hear. I, mean, I, I, I try to reduce this to basic questions that you can ask. And as I mentioned before, the first one is, why am I hearing this? And that's to do with the sort of trustworthiness of the source. You know, who wants me to hear this? Are they just trying to manipulate me? Have they highly selected the data? That used to be my bottom question, but that's my first question. You know, in, in, in an age of misinformation and overclaiming and exaggerations and, you know, claims about AI and algorithms and things like that, I, I, I've become, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm old, I've become very skeptical. And uh, I will first of all want to know, is this propaganda or is this good, genuine science? But then you should ask, you should then, if you, if you get past that filter of deciding whether I'm actually interested in even hearing this stuff and um, learning more about this stuff, then you should ask, I think, you know, is this a reliable number? Is this actual statistic? Is this estimate actually reliable? And look at the design, how it's, how it's been, you know, what study design has been used, the population has been looked at and so on. And then the final one, of course, is, is, is are the claims being made on the basis of this data, are they trustworthy? Because I've known stuff coming out of science where the, you know the data was quite good, and then you get, at the end of it you get this outrageous claim. Well, this means that we should none of us should, we should you know all not drink or something like that. So from some day from some studies, so drink red wine all the time, or, or drink red wine, or you know eat blueberries or something. Some 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 massive claim is being made on the basis of this, either by the scientists or the or the journalists or the editor, and and that might be complete nonsense. And so. I, th I think these are basic questions that we can ask, but it does require a bit of, you know, oh dear, a bit of skepticism, a bit of, um, um, you know, detective work. I, I, I like this term forensic statistics. It's when you're using the statistics to really pull apart the claim to see how reliable and trustworthy it is. Well, if I can make uh, just a small ask of you, just something to think about, um, especially in your position, I would love to know more about how doctors actually consume medical literature. And oh, yeah. if, I mean, I don't know, either getting involved with somebody to do a, a study on that. So obviously some of these publications wouldn't want that data going out. I mean, they may find out that no one reads anything <laughs> who knows, but, um, or, or just, you know, maybe even a, uh, a poll on Twitter just to ask for honest opinions. How often, how long do you spend on a, on a, yeah, I mean, because there are so many filters because there are, you know, many things that will, you know, write an article about a research article. And that's, you know, most of the time is what I will look at. And I'll go then go to the article if I want to get more detail. I'm sure that most people get their information from those summaries. Sure, sure. All right. So um, moving along here, 
algorithms. I mean, I already mentioned that technology talking about Amazon, right? We use this term all the time, but I think many of us really don't fully understand what an algorithm actually is just fundamentally. And then the different variations and, and, and what it's meant to do and what it's inappropriate for. David, just start out. What is an algorithm? Just give us a, yeah, an algorithm. I think it's just a formula. It's just a, a computer program that you put something in one end and something comes out the other end. That's all it is. Now, you might put a, an image in at one end. It may be a sort of deep learning network or some really advanced AI, and out comes uh, a, a claim or a diagnosis or whatever at the other end. You might put in uh, someone's uh, – we, 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 we do a lot of work on algorithms um, that produce prognoses for uh, women with breast cancer or men with prostate cancer. And uh, we, we've got computer, we put front ends on these things and really promote them in the clinic. And But that's an algorithm. You put in the details, the age, and the um, uh, type of tumor, and the observa- any, any other observations on the person, and out comes through a formula um, some predictions about, you know, essentially the probability that the, 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 the percentage of people with who are like that, who you would expect to be alive in 15 years' time. And, and, um, and, and they're, they're all algorithms. Uh, there are different types. There. What's, in, what's inside the sort of box, inside underneath the, the bonnet, as we say, underneath the hood, as you would say, um, different. Sometimes they're different sorts of formulas. Some of them are very, very highly complex and opaque. Some of them are quite simple. Um, but in the end, it's just something where something goes in one end and something else, and a judgment of some kind comes out the other. I want to talk a little bit about these black box ones too. I know it wasn't the main focus of your book, but it's, it's really interesting. So we'll get to that in a moment, but mm-hmm. you have a, um, a quote here from one of your fellow British uh, statisticians, George Box. And mm-hmm. he said, all yeah. models are wrong. Some are useful. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went on and talked about Netflix. So, you know, all of us have used Netflix. It's um, sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it isn't as far as the suggestions it gives you for mm-hmm. TV shows and movies, but mm-hmm. uh, they had a prize, a million dollar prize to develop the algorithm, the ranking and suggestion mm-hmm. algorithm for them. Mm-hmm. And the one that actually won was too complex for them to actually use. Mm-hmm. Tell us what, what that was first. Cause it, it seems counterintuitive. I mean, the more complex, the better would be, right? But that's not necessarily no, the case. No. no, absolutely not. No, no, no. You know, these things can just get too complicated. And, they, you know, they may have a small margin of extra accuracy, um, but it's only it's very small anyway. And, but, you know, the, the idea of just the implementation of it and the obscurity and the, the fact that it's not clear how it works means that it, it is then becomes very unrobust. That's the real problem with, with black box algorithms um, is that they just, they may do very well on that particular set of data on which the prize has been given or whatever, but you move them into a different area and they can just collapse um, because the data inputs are slightly different. They're too highly tuned. They're too refined. And that's where, especially People like me from a statistical background have a, a, a much um, feel much more supportive of of much simpler things, simple scoring systems. You know, getting points for different you know regression formulas that really are just scoring systems. You get points for different findings, you add them up, and you get to some conclusion. Now, though, we know from all sorts of you know long history that these sorts of formulas, simple formulas, are extremely robust to changes in inputs and circumstances, and that's a very attractive characteristic of of an algorithm and they become you know these these over refined you know complex algorithms become brittle and um and 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 can't be can't be transferred and and that's being recognized very strongly within the machine learning world 
Interesting. David, the problem we've had with algorithms in a clinical standpoint is people almost look at it like it like you don't actually have to think about the outcome anymore. You put the the input in, it comes out and it says, oh, here, you treat this person that way. And I think we failed. I think it's a failure to understand what statistics are really telling us but also how to interpret the outcomes of an algorithm. This is such an important issue. And again, it's something, um, I was at a recent AI meeting, that uh, it's called overtrust. And Mm -hmm. it's it's an absolute characteristic of a system that looks good, and it, you know, often ones with quite a nice front end, and it looks convincing, and you try it out, and it's saying sensible things, and then suddenly it becomes this sort of godlike, you know, oracle um, that can't be questioned, and that's extremely dangerous because you know it might it, it might not be so great. You might put it might it might be fine on things that it's been trained on, but you move it slightly outside its its, its comfort zone in terms of a new area, new new type of person, or, or someone who's a bit different, and it can go seriously wrong. So um, I, I we <laughs> we're building these. We've got putting front ends on these algorithms called Predict for breast cancer and prostate cancer. We're 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 as seriously trying to think of ways to make people trust them less. Mm-hmm. because we we uh, we know that we know the problems about them you know the, 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 i think they're brilliant they're very good indeed but you know they're only ballpark figures they only look at there's lots of information that we don't know about the pa- patient we can only give a, a rough figure they're based on a particular set of data it, you know, it's been validated in other sets and so on and it's you know it may not be reliable on cases that are different from the ones it's been trained on we have got we put in something that, that will say this case looks different from uh, what we've seen before. Um, please be cautious about interpreting the results. So that's the kind of things that you could build in. Um, in, in I, I, I use this term trustworthy a lot because it's one something that I, I, I feel is so important. We ought to ask about the trustworthiness of the claim made by the algorithm. And part of that demonstration of trustworthiness is to fully accept it. Um, communicate its uncertainty and also communicate when it doesn't know when it doesn't know when it's on shaky mm-hmm. ground and that it knows when it's on shaky ground so that it should only over make cautious claims and um, that it is confident and uh, and it should be able to say when it doesn't know so um I, th- I mean, a lot of people are working on this area now. They become conscious of it. Um, and it, uh, the but the issue of overtrust is is extremely interesting. And um, I think it, it basically means we have to always retain a degree of skepticism about any piece of technology that um, is telling us what to do. Right. Um, if you can't see where the brain is, don't trust what it's thinking. Yeah. Um, I mean, the example I give was uh, give when I was uh, we were driving in Portugal and you listening to to what I call Mrs. Google, you know, giving us directions <laughs> this way and that. And uh, at one point, it confidently told us to turn left, whereupon we were greeted by a set of steps going downwards. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, that wasn't great. That wasn't great. I, don't, I, I lost my trust slightly. You know? And then, but another time, it was great. It actually said, I'm sorry, I can't help you at the moment. It, we, it got itself lost. It got itself confused. And that was very trustworthy behavior because the algorithm knew what it, when it didn't know. And it's much better than a confident claim to take us down a set of steps. So uh, that sort of exemplified, I, th- I thought, the difference between how you want an algorithm to respond. Yeah, the world would be a much different place if people would just say, I don't know, occasionally. I don't know. I don't know. Something up. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Another thing on algorithms here, I'll just read this quote here. It is important to guard against overfitting an algorithm to training data, essentially fitting to noise rather than signal. So David, there's a lot of excitement right now about things like bio wearables and constant tracking of biomarkers. Mm-hmm. So for example, I can have a little Fitbit and I know exactly how many steps I walked every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I could take my blood pressure multiple times mm-hmm. through the day. My blood, my um, heart rate could be monitored by a, by a watch now. Um, and maybe one day I get a urine analysis at home, you know, in, in my own bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. It's exciting because you think, gosh, there's probably all sorts of little signals in there that could point towards a higher risk for cancer or heart disease down the road or any number of things. But when you start throwing basically a, a fire hydrant of information at an algorithm, mm-hmm. you really don't know where the signals are. It's very difficult to find them. Help us understand a little more about the challenges of digging through so much data and actually finding out what's meaningful. It's very, very difficult. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And, and you know, it's what makes me very skeptical about all the sort of hype about, oh, that, you know, once we've got all this genomic information and we can, we can monitor every bit, every, every little thing that happens to us all the time, somehow we're going to be able to predict what's going to happen. And, and this is a, it's a delusion. It's a delusion. It's been, it's a delusion that's been around for centuries. It's known as Laplace's demon. If only we could measure everything that was going on in every precise detail, we'd be able to predict the future. And this is complete nonsense. And, uh, you know, there is uh, a vast amount of, of, you know, essential unpredictability, uh, unavoidable unpredictability in our lives and our health. And um, I'm sure we can do better. I'm sure we can always we can measure better things, and that will give us for some people, it'll give them you know it'll point to them as higher you know importantly higher risk, but you know for a lot of um, you know you know uh, observations of things that we can make, it, it can maybe put us into a slightly higher risk category, and that might make us a bit more cautious. But um, I'm I'm very anxious about the great rise in anxiety that could arise, could come up. And, and the other thing is, of course, the, the problem with, you know, you, you measure yourself, Oh, I'm, I'm raised something or other. And so you go along to your doctor and they do some tests and they, and that costs money, of course, and these results come back. And we know that some of those tests will be false positives. Like, oh, and there's more. And then you're down the chain, you're getting investigation. You might get, you might get you're getting a biopsy, you're getting this, that, and the other. And there's a huge amount of unnecessary investigation and over-treatment and over-diagnosis that is likely, unless we're careful, could be a consequence of this over-monitoring of the population. Now, you know, it's great to find out useful information, but we have to make sure that it really is useful. It really identifies people at, at, a, at a level of increased risk that makes it um, uh, valuable to expend resources on them and that they should be concerned about themselves. Um, I mean, I think actually people are not daft. You know, the research seems to show that you can tell people all about their genetic risk and they say, oh, thank you very much and take almost no notice of it at all unless it's, a, unless it's obviously a really, you know, maybe a bracker or obviously Huntington's, you know, something very strong. They'll take something notice of it. But just most of the stuff that comes for, out of 23andMe and other, other, other panels will just give you, you know, a 20% increased risk of this, 25% increased risk of that. And frankly, you know, who cares? Well, that's a good point too. I mean, and we could put calorie contents for fast food, and people still eat it, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, information I think isn't I think the, uh, that, that that sort of instant information about the accident number of steps you're taking, the calorie count, and things like that. I think it's actually 
I do think is, is valuable because that can uh, adjust your behavior every day in a small way and make you conscious of, of, uh, of, of your lifestyle and how it should be more healthy. And I think that sort of direct monitoring, that is directly, that is useful information, I think, to your daily decision making. It's the stuff where you get some panel and it gives, tells you some sort of your risk of developing this condition later in your life is, is 20%, is increased by 20%. It's that sort of information that I feel is deeply dubious and of, of limited value in many most circumstances. Yeah. It's uh, pernicious too because uh, we have both um, uh, insurance and legal issues that arise from that predictive, uh, those predictions. Um, I don't know how it is in the United Kingdom, but here you could get uninsurable or put kicked into a more expensive pool because of something on this 23andMe. Yeah, and currently the only genetic thing that can affect insurance in the UK is Huntington's. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can't use it for insurance and they can't ask it. Right. Dave, we're getting uh, closer to the time here. Um, so, man, we've got so much more I want to talk to you about. So we'll just keep keep plugging away here. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to touch briefly on what's been termed the replication or reproducibility mm-hmm. crisis. So mm-hmm. I, I learned a few things on this. I, take us back a little history, you know, when, when this originated, questioning some of these uh, these studies most of it's been in psychology, but it's it's mm. in other fields as well. And neuro, neuroscience as well. Exactly. So give us an idea, you know, where this came from and, and help us get a better understanding of what, what they've uncovered so far. Yeah, I mean, I suppose most people would date this to John in his paper in 2005 when he claimed very boldly that, you know, at least half the, the published scientific literature or medical literature was, was, were false discoveries, so, you know, that, that, that were just wrong. Most, most of the scientific literature was wrong. So it's a massive claim, um, which he backed up with some analysis, no data, but just an analysis of, of how things are done. And, um, and people after that have tried to replicate that, particularly in psychology, there's been a lot of interest because they, they have found that a lot of findings that were, people were, have, have, have been accepting as, as sort of true psychological results just they couldn't when people other people tried to uh, reproduce those, those experiments couldn't couldn't do it and um, so psychology has really led the way in trying to improve uh, the process by which scientific research is done and I mentioned earlier this idea of registered reports um, which I think is a very powerful idea to just to since you go right back to the beginning to make sure that when you're starting on a body of research that it's going to produce reliable findings and that are not just going to be one-offs and false false discoveries and but statistics you know has had its come into its fair share of, of, of criticism um, in this area because of this use of the idea of statistical significance and the, in the book of course I do spend quite a lot of time on this because it is one of the most difficult issues and one that has probably you know been most misused in in statistics and uh, you know broadly uh, people like their results to be statistically significant and then it is often interpreted as if this is a true a discovery a discovery well what does that mean it just means that the results that you've observed uh, there's less than one in 20 chance you would have seen something as extreme as that were there really no of, you know, no, um, uh, no claim there at all. Whether really this was, if it was just noise, 
uh, it's unlikely that you would have observed something as extreme as you did. And that all sounds very fine if you're only ever doing one experiment and that's it. You're just focusing on one thing. Uh, for example, is if you've pre-registered it and you've said exactly, this is going to be my analysis. This is what I'm going to do. The problem occurs is if you know, you're know you doing tons of experiments, you're trying lots of things, you're tweaking them as they go along. Um, what's called <laughs> questionable research practices. You, you, know, you slightly change the protocol, you change the outcome measure you, you you drop some subgroups of people and so on. and in the end you end up with p less than 0.05 a significant result and what well, published that and it's claimed to be a discovery well this is going to be you know no ability people won't be able to rep replicate this at all and uh, and this is what's happened in so much of the literature so there's a huge effort now to, trying to make when people say you know this is a discovery that it really is a discovery and, and of course um in certain areas, uh, this has been recognized very well in, in um, searching the genome. Uh, you know, people have realized there were so many false claims of associations between a particular gene, a particular and a particular outcome. So many false claims at the beginning that now, you know, they they have an extremely stringent um, p-value. So, you know, five times 10 to the minus eight, you know, with a tiny, tiny loads of zeros in front of it before you can make a claim. Uh, for the Higgs boson, the p-value is less than one in three million, you know, so you, you wow. deserve... If you're going to make a, a scientific claim that's going to be, you can claim this is physics, um, you don't want to have the embarrassment of then of, of uh, people not being able to replicate that. And so you have to be really certain. And, and so they, they have very strong demands for the um, quote, significance of the results. Now, um, this whole business of, of doing a very a huge complex experiment, a big randomized trial costing tens of millions of dollars, and then in the end reducing the whole analysis, the whole um, conclusions to is it significant or not, I think is outrageous and very poor science. And I was one, there was a letter recently in Nature complaining about this use of statistical significance, this simple dichotomy significant or not and had 800 supporting signatures and i was one of those signatories you know having worked on this all my life i'm now saying you shouldn't be doing it <laughs> which i can understand why people might be quite confused having spent in all their suffered through statistics courses emphasizing statistical significance now that doesn't mean that calculating p-values calculating um uh, doing these sort of calculations, I think, is a very good idea. Well, what the uh, signatories of the letter were complaining about was this reduction of a massive scientific investigation to a simple yes, no, significant, not significant, um, you know, a, a discovery or or nothing there at all. And this absurd sort of parody of of, of the idea of, of learning from data um, to try to reduce it to that simple division. Well, do you think there's any potential... Because we, we talked about time as a factor, uh, you know, going through so much literature, there's thousands of publications. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of them are bogus, but, you know, of thousands in all these different fields, there's just thousands and thousands of, of uh, published um, studies. Nobody has time to go through all this. And if you're a policymaker and you're trying to decide about funding, if you're a, um, even a patient trying to decide about a treatment, it's very difficult. And, and mm. You know, it's it's hard enough for you, right, David? Oh, yeah. Do you think I, I, there's there's a need or a possibility for maybe a grading system, um, not to be too paternalistic, but maybe some you know body that looks at information and gives it a thumbs up or thumbs down? Mm. Well, uh, no, the, well, 
I mean, there is to some extent, and it's called grade um, in medicine. It developed, you know, largely through the Cochrane collaboration that that reviews evidence, puts it together, and they produce a star rating on 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 medical claims. You know, one to four stars sure. on, um, and, and I find that extremely convincing. I mean, you know, valuable. And you know, I'm not saying that system itself is perfect, but and and this is interestingly in other areas outside medicine, in policing, in, in education, things that people have come to the same conclusion that they need a sort of well, like you know, sort of trip advisor for scientific evidence. Is this one, two, three, four, or five star evidence in terms of its, you know, you know, all sorts of issues can come into that. Uh, I think it's. I love. I really like this idea that you can um, uh, that 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 you know some studies are just better than others. You produce more reliable claims, um, and so. I, I think you know we should be trying to make as much of our published evidence as possible for you know four or five star and whatever that means, um, and that and that also means of course that funders need to be prepared to fund uh, replications. You know that that just you know that things have to be repeated in slightly different circumstances to check results. If we're going to believe the claims that are made and use them for patient care or our own information, well, this should be reliable. And therefore, um, I want to see you know a, an important study that I want to use. I want to show that it's, I want to see that it's been replicated and other people have shown similar results. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, deliberate fraud among researchers. Two um, percent, I think, have admitted to it in some surveys, yeah. but it could, of course, be more or, or mm. perhaps less. But do you think, uh, maybe this is just too broad a question or too difficult to answer, but, you know, would there be maybe fingerprints, maybe certain patterns in some of these 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 bogus studies mm. that could be scanned by AI and, oh. you know, oh. kind of, you know, it's, it's going on. No, it's going on. It's going on. It started. Yeah. Ah. Um, they, no, there are, uh, I mean, I think the actual fabrication is not the big problem. I mean, it is there, it does happen. There are some high profile cases, there are retractions and things like that. And, and, it, and it, obviously it's going to happen. There are incentives for it. Um, but I, in the end, I don't think that is really the problem. It's, it's much more the questionable research practices, thus people tweaking and fiddling and adjusting and, you know, just constantly trying to make things look bigger, better than they are. Which, and, and that's why we have an unreliable scientific literature. Um, but the actual automatic searching for, for problems, you know, people know people are working on that uh, to spot, uh, you know, you know, just statistical faults, things that can't follow, claims that can't follow from the data and and um, and uh, anomalies in the data. And uh, and this will, and I think this will be successful and in the end, though, you know, uh, people will get a bit, people making up their data will get a bit more um, canny about the sort of things that be looked for. Um, so in the end, I don't think this is, this is the answer uh, completely, but I think it is a useful thing. It's a bit like a plagiarism you know, searching tool. That is quite, that is, you know, all those things are quite valuable to have. Yeah. It might be a lot of fun for the people who, uh, you know, journalists or other researchers who, you know, getting known for you know uncovering. Stuff. Oh yeah, no, they are, they exist particularly in psychology, and uh, you know it's uh, it's not fun at all. I I feel very sorry. They slog away, and then of course they contact the author, and it goes backwards and forwards. There's denial and argument, <laughs> and then course, all they're trying to do is get the paper retracted. So this huge amount of effort, the skills people are putting in, just to try to clear up the worst of the science, just try to vague. And I feel sorry for them. I mean, I wouldn't. I just get get exhausted by it, um, because. You know, people are. You know, people. If people are making the stuff up, they're they're going to be shameless. They're not going to give up easily. 
That, well, that's very true. The careers are on the line. Mm, yeah, exactly. We're getting very close here. Uh, Keith, do you have anything else? Um, yeah, just a quick question. Getting back to the book, um, what spurred you to to write it? I mean, it's it's such a uh, a big complex uh, thing, and to try to bring it down to language that people understand. Um, and you've done a great job with it. Why did you embark on this incredible undertaking? Oh, thank you so much for asking that. Yes, yeah. Oh, it's because I, I've taught statistics, you know, for years, and um, and I don't like the way I teach it. <laughs> uh, you know, I really, I mean, everyone, it's, I, mean, I feel sorry for, I'm sure many people listening to this will have suffered through statistical courses, and they start off with probability theory, and then they do summary statistics, and then they work out sample distribution, the sample mean, and, 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 and then they do lots of tests and formulas and which test you use in, in what situation oh dear i really feel sorry for people because that's not statistics that's not you know it's what gets taught it's what i learned it's what i teach but it's not statistics statistics is learning from evidence learning from data answering questions answering important problems which sometimes you can't, can't answer with the data you've got so you just can't do it um, and it's about the limitations which are always there with data no data is perfectly drawn from a normal distribution it never is just not just untrue just none of this is true so it's, it's an odd edifice where the assumptions underneath all statistical analysis are basically wrong it's like all models are wrong it's all wrong but it's good enough in many circumstances and so that's why i called it the art of statistics that it's not a set of sort of physical laws in the same way that can be proven true or false um, and i really enjoyed trying to put all these slightly more difficult ideas these arty ideas um into into a book where with with almost no maths but lots of stories it's, it's essentially it's story driven a lot of them are concerned with problems i've had but it's quite they're all about answering questions you know oh, like you know for me should i take statins i i talk about the mass murderer hal shipman could he have been caught earlier um you know you know uh, you know who was the luckiest man on the titanic you know i do all that kind of stuff and um yeah, as interesting question. Then say, okay, what data have we got that could help us answer those important questions? Um, and that data will always be limited. It'll never be just what we want. Um, but that's what actually statistics is really about, not about whether you should do a one-sided or two-sided test or what's the formula for a chi-squared distribution. Much though I like those things. Right. <laughs> well, David, just to finish things off here, um, we look today, I mean, there's such an availability of information and good information that is literally in the palm of your hand everywhere you go on your smartphone. It's amazing. Mm. Yet there's also a tremendous, I mean, we all know fake news. We know um, mm. the vaccines, everything that's, that's influencing people's thinking mm. in the wrong direction. You've spent a lot of your time in public education. You've been, you know, at TV series, you've been everywhere try, trying to make an effort to, to help mm. people get a better grasp of this. How do you feel about the future? Are you optimistic? Are you concerned? Um, what, what are your thoughts? I, 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 I'm a, I am a natural optimist, so I am optimistic. I think when in the future people look back at this on this period and think, oh, my God, you know, as a cowboy period in, in the development of social media and modern technology, they'll say, my God, you gave away your information like that. You just put all that stuff up. Didn't you realize what it would mean for you later on or how people are making use of your information? Um, and, and, and I think they'll think, my God, Facebook and Google got away with that. And, and so, you know, I think that things will change. There will be more constraints in the future. I think um, there's a growing, what I might call, ecology of fact checkers, 
of people who are not prepared just to accept everything they, they hear, who's going to push back on false claims. Um, I would love to feel that people in the media um, could be better trained to question claims about science or evidence. I mean, when did you ever hear, you know, if somebody quotes a number, a statistic in the news, you know, you know on being, when they're being interviewed, when did you ever hear the interviewer saying, where did you get that from? You know, I don't believe that one. I don't, I don't, I, you know, where did you get it from? How, how did you come to that? Because I'm sure that would baffle a person who is, who is making the claim. You know, <laughs> right. I, I, I really hope that, um, I, that, um, I, I, I love numbers and, and scientific evidence and data. They are so important for our understanding of the whole world and making better decisions, whether at an individual or a societal level. And therefore, I, th- you know, I think they, they need to be treated with respect and not abused. And I think that you know, people are realizing that because of the amount of number abuse that's going on at the moment. Um, you know, and I, I won't mention any names. But, um, it, but so I, th- I, th- I think... People will realize that. And I, 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 just like the scientific literature, I believe, will improve in the future um, because of the, this crisis that it has been going through. Um, I, 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 I do think, hope that the general uh, way in which data and information are being promoted on social media and, and mainstream media um, also, um, people will become more aware, more savvy about critiquing it, calling it out, and demanding better. And that's why I think, you know, the, all this stuff should be in schools, curriculum. You know, the kids should be learning about how to critique stories, that it's not to believe everything they see on the internet, how to use the internet, how to search, um, how to critique what, what, they're, what they hear, and not just to click like and share on any old rubbish that comes onto their stream. Totally agree, actually. I, uh, and it, maybe I'm... Uh, I share your optimism. Maybe that's just because I just finished Steven Pinker's Enlightenment now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I feel the same way. And I think you know as we as we close here, I, I I haven't seen this, but I heard you mention it in another interview as I was preparing. And as a parent, this is really interesting to me. So you recently did a series with the BBC aimed at children. Mm-hmm. Tell us just briefly about this and and how. Tell us about your approach to teaching some of these concepts to to young children. Yeah, we 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 made a documentary on the attempts around the world to teach kids, children, um, the idea of of critiquing evidence, especially health claims that were heard. Went to Silicon Valley and talked to its high school class. It was great being taught about how to search the internet well. But we also went to Uganda, where um, uh, the, the kids in primary schools were being taught about critiquing health claims. And there, there's a lot of well, I suppose yeah, there is everywhere, but there in particular, there's a lot of very dubious health claims, snake oil salesmen trying to, you know, and, and traditional remedies that, are, that might be actively dangerous. And uh, so they uh, they were being taught this in schools using some very good materials prepared uh, between Uganda and Norway. And we went in there and interviewed the kids, interviewed the teachers, and they've been shown in a big randomized trial published in The Lancet, you know, top journal, um, that this could be very effective, not only in training the, the kids, but also their families. They, they had podcasts for the, for the parents and everything like this. So that made me, and also seeing the work that's being done in the States, uh, hugely optimistic about the possibilities with good materials and with care that young people could enjoyably be trained to call out and identify false claims particularly in the health in the health domain just what questions to ask what to look out for and so on and, and the lovely thing is of course that people enjoy learning this stuff nobody likes to be taken in nobody likes to be a mug everyone loves being at a spot 
no, when someone is trying to trick them. Ah, you know, yeah, they're saying that, but this hasn't been. And, and every, this really is, in, I mean, it's, yeah. to use a common phrase, this is empowering to people um, to be able to spot when people are trying to manipulate them. And uh, I think this is uh, going to be an essential skill in uh, future society. I love it. I might check it out this weekend. Well, David, it is uh, in England right now. It is 6 p.m. And oh, yeah. You've got to get your weekend started. It's Friday evening. I got to, I got to start cooking. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight, this evening. I mean, it was a tremendous amount of fun. And uh, thanks for carving out some time with us. Oh, it's been great. Really enjoyable. I could. Oh, you can tell I could go on for hours. So it's just as well you, just, you shut me up now. Well, with that said, um, maybe we can talk you into coming back for round two at some point. <laughs> Well, that would be a pleasure. It's been very good. I really well, enjoyed it. Well, thank you again. And, and everyone, again, that is Professor David Spiegelhalter. He is a professor of statistics at Cambridge. And his recent book, The Art of Statistics, How to Learn from Data, really good. I mean, I just read it. It's available everywhere. Amazon, as we said, bookstores. Uh, definitely worth picking up. Um, David, thank you again for joining us. And uh, everyone out there listening, take care. We'll see you here next time. <laughs>